Paul is making a transition at the end of chapter 4 from the theological section in the book of Galatians over to the practical section of the book of Galatians. And I've already said that chapters 5 and 6 are absolutely phenomenal, incredibly practical about how to walk in the Spirit and to live by grace and to live by faith. It deals with liberty and so many other things. And Paul's about ready to go there. Paul has made it clear that it is a false teaching that you need to keep the law or that you can be saved by works. What had happened in Galatia was the legalists had come in. These were, interestingly enough, now as they're able to go back, scholars believe that they were Gentiles who had taken on Judaism as a form of spirituality, like they would be more spiritual if they were circumcised, more spiritual if they kept the law, more spiritual if they kept the Sabbaths, more spiritual if they kept the feasts. There were the Judaizers who were Jews who were trying to persuade people in the Christian community to keep the law, but it's believed that these were legalists who were not Jewish who were pushing this doctrine, which Paul clearly says is a false doctrine. He says, I marvel that you have so soon turned from the gospel to another gospel, which is not even a gospel. And if anybody comes to you bringing you a message other than what we have already brought you, let them be accursed. He clearly showed it as a false doctrine that if you believed that you had to add anything to the law, and this is human nature. We believe that we find a way that's better, that we find, a, but, but you can't find a way that's better than grace. You can't find a way that is better than, than Jesus and the work he did for us on the cross. Anything you add to it actually diminishes from the work that he did. And we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And we've seen over the last few months that this book covers that in detail. I, my wife, who, who I love very much, by the way, is at home. I want to make sure I don't say something I've got to say I'm sorry for later on. Uh, she was editing my, and I, I love that she's, she's a writer and she, her, she edits my, my notes. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. And uh, she's edited them and she goes, man, it's the same topic over and over again. And I go, yeah, it's the book of Galatians. Paul is just hammering this thing home. And he does it again here by bringing up an illustration of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. It's an unflattering illustration of the law compared to faith. And that's the title of our message. An unflattering illustration of the law compared to faith. The chapter started with an illustration and it ends with an illustration. Do you remember the one that it started with? It says, even if a child who is an heir is at home, he lives like a servant until he is of full age and then he receives the sonship, the heir, but even though he's a son, saying that we, you and I have been children of God and we cry out, Abba, Father, and by faith, we are children of God. Why would we go back to the weak and beggarly elements of the law, which is weak? And that's really all. Weak and beggarly wasn't an insult, but a description of the law. It can show you your sin, but it can't save you. So it begins with, began with that illustration. Now he turns to an illustration that he's used throughout the whole book. And that is that we are children of Abraham, not of the law. That Abraham lived 430 years before the law and God gave him the covenant of grace. And you can read about that in Genesis and that we are of the promise. Now, Abraham had two wives, 
Hagar and Sarah. Both of these wives, wives represent two covenants and represent being under the law or under grace. That's the illustration that he's going to use here. Before we get into our text, we need to get um, a little bit of the setting because we might not have it. And that is that Abraham is 75 years old when he's called out of Ur to go into the promised land. He travels there. He looks for a city whose, hand, whose, whose foundations are built by God. So he is a nomad. He is a Hebrew, which is what the word Hebrew means, that they travel around. And he was traveling. He was a Hebrew. And uh, he, when, as soon as he got in the land, he took off to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. So immediately there was a test. And it seems that Abraham failed it. And it seems that Abraham failed tests of faith quite a few times. And yet he's called the father of faith. That ought to be really helpful to us when we fail tests of faith, knowing that Abraham failed them and he was the father of faith. And so he um, goes until he's, I don't know how old, 70, um, 85 years old, somewhere in the, in the middle, um, 80, I guess 86 or 87 years old. His wife is 76 or 77 years old, past the age of childbearing. And Sarah decides, I'm not going to have a child. Even though God has said, you're, you're going to have a child. And maybe Sarah thought, well, he didn't mention me. And so I'm not going to have the child. And so he, she said, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a child by her. This was a custom in their day. And the passage tells us that he took her as a wife and had a child by her. So he married her. But she was a servant. She was Sarah's servant. And when she became pregnant, Hagar despised Sarah and there kind of became a, a struggle between them and Hagar left. And remember, God called her and told her to go back and to submit to Sarah. And then when the, chi the child is born, the child is 13 years old at, and by this time, Isaac has been born. So Isaac um, is named Laughter because both Abraham and Sarah laughed when they were told that they were going to have a child in their old age. And so God told them, name him Isaac, name him laughter. He was born to Abraham when he was 100 and to Sarah when she was 90. This is talking of the incredible promises of God and the redeeming power because to be barren in our day doesn't mean much. To be barren in their day meant a lot. And so for her, him, for God to allow Sarah to have a child, laughter in her old age was amazing. But when he was being weaned, Ishmael, Hagar's son, made fun of Isaac. And Sarah wasn't going to have none of it. And so Sarah went to Abraham and said, cast out the bondwoman and her son. This was heartbreaking to Abraham because he loved his son. I don't know what kind of relationship he had with Hagar. But he loved his son, maybe loved Hagar. He's, she's his wife. And cast them out. And he's probably not going to do it. But God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, listen to your wife. And ladies, don't quote that to your husband. It's in context, all right? God said to Abraham, listen to your wife. And so he cast out the bondwoman and her son. And they went out into the wilderness and, and they needed water. And so she put the child a distance off and she went off and she sat and she cried and God appeared to her 
And God showed her that he was going to make Ishmael a great man and was going to honor her and that they were going to survive. And they did. And God, God provided for them. So the bond woman was taken out of the house. Now, this act of taking this woman and, and marrying her and having children to her was by the flesh. It was, a, it was not by faith. Later on, when God comes to him and says, Sarah's going to have a son, he says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God, I've already taken care of it. I wonder how many times we do something of the flesh to try to take care of a promise that God has given us. So that's the account. That's the story that he's going to bounce off of here now. And in this passage, I have an outline. If you're taking notes, the number one is, he says, do you understand the law? Do you understand the law? Number two, an Old Testament illustration. This is the illustration that we're going to read, but he's actually going to tell us how it applies. And then number three, application from this passage or application from the illustration. And I'm really good that he goes into application to what it means because I think people can take, when you take something like this and you allegorize it, and by the way, you find very little of this kind of allegorizing in the scriptures. This is one of the rare places where an Old Testament passage is applied in a metaphor or an analogy. People today like to do that all of the time, but most of the New Testament when it goes back and looks at passages, it brings them forward literally and talks about them being fulfilled literally. Jesus was called out of Egypt. He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he, he was born to a virgin. None of these were allegories. And I'll challenge you, if you find other allegories that are in the New Testament, allegorical passages like this one, then uh, put them in any comment, any comment on any video in YouTube. I'm the one who oversees the comment sections of that and I'll get that from you. I just thought I'm going to get flooded with messages now. Uh, and you can ask questions too, by the way, just any question, any video on YouTube and I'll get the question from you from the studies that we're going through. But I would love to see if anybody else finds allegorical things excluding the book of Revelation. Obviously, when, if, if the book of Revelation says and um, there was a man sitting on a chair, you want to take that literally. It was a man sitting on a chair. If it says, and I saw a man having six legs floating above the ocean and on his back was riding a horse. Now that's not literal, right? We know that. It's just common sense. You just apply common sense to the scriptures. And there's a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutical? There's a principle in hermeneutics that says that if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. That just keeps you from going too far out. But he brings us over as an allegory, which means that we can do it. We just want to make sure that we can support it from other areas of Scripture. We can use an illustration as long as we can support it other places. I went to a study one time by John Corson at a pastor's conference, and he used God's staff as an illustration for his staff and our staff at the church. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so we talked about pastoral staff comforting people in the church and he used all kinds of illustrations. He used other passages to make his point so he didn't stray too far. Now, John Corson, extremely good at that. Extremely good at finding an analogy and then applying it in a certain way. But he uses other biblical principles to make his point. Otherwise, you veer off and can get in a lot of trouble. 
All right, so he starts off, and this is point number one, uh, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. You guys want to be under the law? Do you not hear the law? He's saying to them, do you not understand the law? You want to be under it. Have you read it? Do you understand it? Do you hear it? Let me give you a few verses of what he means when he says this. Do you understand this about the law? Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. He says, even we, because he is a Pharisee. He's, he's, he's Jewish to the core and he's a Pharisee. I don't know if he called himself a Pharisee anymore, but he was trained as a Pharisee. So he says, even we believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. You who want to be under the law, do you know the law? That no flesh is justified by it. It can show you your sin, but it can't save you from it. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith but after faith has come, we no longer need the tutor. The law was our tutor, brought us to Christ. Once we come to Christ, we no longer need the tutor. We are no longer under the law. Then in Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. So these are the kind of things that he says, do you know the law? Those of you who want to be under it, do you know it? The book of Hebrews says the law cannot save, but Christ saves to the uttermost. He not only can take the law that reveals your sin, but he can save you from the sin that it reveals. And so now he gets into the illustration. And the illustration talks about two covenants, two cities, and uh, two women, <laughs> two, two wives or two mothers, I guess would be a better way to say it. Two covenants, two cities, and two wives. So verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he, was of the, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. He means that it wasn't a move, a miraculous move of God by a promise, but it was according to the flesh where Abraham just went and got married to another woman and had a child by her. And he of the free woman through the promise. So it was God's promise that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a child and that through that child, the whole nation was going to be blessed. And so he says, um, which things are symbolic? Now here he goes to the symbols. These things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So Mount Sinai was where the law was given. So he's saying it is symbolic that the law is of the flesh. The law is not of the spirit. The law was given by angels. Uh, God wrote part of the law, the Ten Commandments with his fingers and gave it to Moses, but it wasn't of the spirit. You had to go out and live it by the flesh, not by the empowering of the spirit. What we're going to see in chapters five and six in Galatians is that we live the life of grace by the spirit of God to please God and to live the life that he has for us. So the law is Hagar. And then he goes on to say, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai 
in Arabia. Again, that's where the law was given. And it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So the law is Mount Sinai and the offspring of Hagar. This is why I called it an unflattering illustration of the law over grace or over faith. Because Hagar, the bondwoman, is the law in his symbolism. And Jerusalem, which we love as a city, is the, the descendant of Hagar as well. It represents Mount Sinai because they're under the law. That's where the temple is at this point when he's writing this in the late 40s in the first century. The temple is still around and it represents Hagar, he says. Now, this is a pretty strong illustration by Paul that trying to live by the law is a work of the flesh. He goes on to say, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through the promise. Sorry, I'm down in the two cities, right? Um, so it's Jerusalem and the bondage with the children Then verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all of us. So all of us by faith are citizens of heaven, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians. So that we are not partakers of Jerusalem and the law, but partakers of heaven. And in Revelation, this new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, 1,500 miles square. The foundations are written on it, the, the names of the 12 apostles. It has pearly gates and transparent walls and golden streets which I don't know whether those things are symbolic themselves or whether they are literal. I kind of like to think they're literal. It could be that transparent walls speak of needing no privacy. No more, no more do we need privacy. Right now, I'm very happy to have privacy. There'll come a day and we don't need it. We, we walk on the stuff that this world values, gold. And giant pearls, a pearl is created through agitation. A giant pearl, can you imagine how much agitation it took to make that pearl? And we walk into the gates of heaven having been agitated here on this earth into all of that glory. That is the city that we look forward to. And we achieve that city by faith. We don't achieve that city by keeping the law or by keeping any other works, by the way. Whatever kind of works you want to add, we don't by that. Now, when he says that these things are two covenants as well, it would be the covenant of the Old Testament and the covenant of Christ. When Jesus took the cup on the night he was arrested, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. That is the new covenant. He also talked about the new covenant being a covenant of love, that we would love one another. This is the covenant that God has for us, that we would walk in love towards one another. You, uh, if you're never challenged to love another believer, then you never have to really step up and do what God's calling you to do. If it, if it comes really easy to you, and you're just a big, you know, love person, everybody. But when there's friction, that's when you step up and go, I am called to love. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God wants us to forgive. And, and, the, um, and why I'm talking about that right now, I'm not quite sure. I got lost in my train of thought. So two, oh, covenant, two covenants. So the covenant of love, which is the covenant of, of Christ. And the second covenant is the covenant of the law. And that's what they represent. Then there's two cities, the city in the Jerusalem here, which is 
Mount Sinai, which is the law, and the Jerusalem that is in heaven, which is by faith, which all of us are living for. And by the way, so was Abraham. Abraham never dwelt in a city, it says, because he was looking for a city whose foundations were built by God. So he, he wandered just like us. We're wandering through this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are ambassadors, the Bible says, of Christ, uh, imploring people to come to Christ. That's what, we're, that's what we're called to do. That's what the passage says. So he says, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 54, 1. Think of Isaiah 53. All of the passages about our, our blood, I mean, our sins being put on Christ and him suffering for our sins and even gives a hint of the resurrection there in Isaiah 53. So then right after Isaiah 53 is done, where the last verse of Isaiah 53 says that he put the iniquity of us all upon him. And then it says in the next verse, for it is written, rejoice, O barren. Even if you're barren, rejoice. Because what really matters is that Christ has died for you. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, for you are not, are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. He's saying that God reaches out and helps those who are barren. It's an, an, an analogy in itself. It's not meant to be taken literally, because how could a barren woman have more children than someone who's married? It's not saying some barren woman's going to all of a sudden have more children. It's simply saying, if you are barren, rejoice. Because there was a stigma to being barren in their day. Because of what Christ has done on that cross for you and for me. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what restrictions we may have, no matter what stigma we may face, we are to rejoice because of all that Christ has done for us. And so that's the point that Paul is making. Now we get to the application of the passage. He says that we are like Isaac. We come, there's two sons. You come from either Hagar, or you come from either Ishmael, or you come from Isaac. And so we are from Isaac. Look at verse 28. Now we, brethren, are Isaac, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So think of this. We are children of Abraham. It was promised to Abraham at 75 years old, and later on at 100 years old, that he was going to have a child. It was a child of promise. Why? Because 90-year-old women don't have children. And so it was promised that they would have a child. And so God met Isaac with that promise. And here comes Isaac. And he's a child of Abraham of promise. And you and I are like Isaac. We are children of the promise. It is by the promise of God that if you receive him, if you believe in him, that you will be saved. When you trust in the grace of God, not in the work of the flesh. And how much better. If you do the work of the flesh, then you're going to get paid. How much are you going to get paid for what you do? You say, God, I'm going to do this work for you. And I'm going to go to church on Saturday for you so I can get paid. What are you going to get paid? What's that worth? How much is that worth? You say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to speak in tongues and therefore, I'm, okay, so you speak in tongues to work. You work for whatever to get something from God. What's that worth? What are you going to get paid? It's got some value, I imagine. Something. 
You say, well, I'm going to be baptized to be saved. Okay, you go be baptized in order to work to get paid for that. What's you getting baptized worth? But what is God's grace worth? God's grace is undeserved favor. So it overflows the bounds of payments. If God says, Robert, you can work and I'll bless you, or I'll give you grace and bless you. Which one would I choose? Who would choose work? Who would say, I'm going to labor for it? Because that labor has boundaries. There's only so much you can get paid. And really, quite frankly, what do we have to offer God? What can we offer him that God would go, I'm now going to give you something significant. But if it's by grace, through the love of God, through what he gives us, you know, there's a passage that says it's the goodness of God that brings about repentance. I've known people that have come back to Christ because God kept blessing them when they were away. It's the goodness of God. God has given you more than you deserve. God's grace is incredible. Abraham and Sarah didn't deserve a child at 90 and 100 years old, but they got one. Laughter in their lives at 90 and 100 years old. So we are now, we brethren, verse 28 again, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Again, very strong that we are not under the law. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so now. The symbolism here goes pretty deep. Those that keep laws or rules or works make fun of us because we live by grace. They talk bad about us because we live by grace. They sneak in among us and try to, to, to tear us down because we are hanging on to grace. They call what we do easy believism because they want works connected to it. And I say, you say it in a derogatory sense, it's easy believism. And I say in a real sense, yes, it is easy but someone paid the price. Someone did the work. They went to the cross. They bled and they died so that you could call out on his name and be saved so that you could do no work to be saved, but call out on his name. And they persecute us. When you talk to someone who believes that going to church on Saturday will save you, they're attacking us. The baptism saves you. They're attacking us. Uh, that uh, speaking in tongues, they're attacking us. Any other work that people come up with that has to be done, they're attacking us. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so we are persecuted. Now, the persecution was pretty strong in their day. Paul was a part of that persecution. He was of the law, persecuting Christians who were of grace. And so he says, but, um, but as it was, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And his point is, cast out the law. We are not 
under the law. There's nothing in the law for us except to help us see sin. That's what the law does so well. It does it really good. There is value in studying it, not to be saved, not to live under it, but cast it out. Don't take any part of it. And, and the picking and choosing, the Bible says, if you fall short in one part of the law, you have fallen short in all of it. So those who pick and choose, well, I have to keep this part of the law. I keep the dietary parts of the law. I keep the festivals of the law. And I've said this over and over again in this series. If you, as a Christian living by grace, want to keep the festivals because you feel you want to do it, it's your freedom to do that. And there's nothing wrong with it. As soon as you think you're superior to someone else because you keep the festivals, now you messed it up. You went from something that was good for you in your liberty to now thinking, well, I keep the festivals. And I'll tell you what, that pride in human nature comes so quickly. When I was a youth pastor in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque and had my business, I was working a business like you work a business, sometimes 12-hour days. And I would come home and I would need to use the time to prepare the studies for the kids. But I wanted to unwind. So I would get home, I'd turn on the TV. There was this old show on called um, White Shadow. Do you guys remember that show about a coach? And I would, I would unwind watch that show. It was about, an, I think it was an hour long. And I would watch it. And then I would get up and go through my study. And then I would teach the kids and I would feel like that wasn't good. I just, I'm not, I'm sorry, God. I'm not putting the time in that I need to. So I'd make a commitment to them. Okay, Lord, I'm gonna put the time in I need to. And then I wouldn't do it again. And I wouldn't do it again. So finally I said to Lisa, let's get rid of the TV. I, if I don't have the TV here, I, I'll, I'll just go into my study. And so we got rid of the TV which she was more than happy to get rid of the TV, by the way. And we didn't get rid of the TV forever. We gave it to her sister, who then gave it back to us. And I have a TV in my house now. I have TVs in my house now, all right? But what was funny is I got rid of it because of a weakness in my flesh that I could not focus in on what I was supposed to do for Christ. So then a couple week later, weeks later, somebody says, what about that Monday night football game? And I said, you watch TV? I don't watch TV and realized how quickly pride comes about. Now something I did for the right reasons. All of a sudden, my flesh took credit for it and I got puffed up. That's why we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because those works will start puffing you up. And pretty soon you're like, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't do that. You didn't do that. You go to church on Sunday. You, yeah, all of a sudden it becomes a prideful issue. So he goes on to say then that the one persecuted the other one. Nevertheless, what does Scripture say? Cast out the, the, son, the, uh, the um, bondwoman and her son. And then he says in verse 31, this is where freedom comes in. And he's going to bounce right off of this into liberty in our next study. Our next study is about the freedom we have in Christ and how we should use the freedom we have for edification and not for gratification of the flesh. And so he says in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are not children of Hagar, which is the law, which is the Jerusalem on earth, but we are children of Isaac, which is grace, which is the promise. That's the term he uses here. We are children of the promise, and we are children of the heavenly Jerusalem, and we are children of the new covenant. 
not of the old covenant. It is a powerful illustration that is not flattering to the legalist at all. And Paul may be doing this on purpose. Paul might be, you guys want to talk about the Old Testament? You want to talk? Let me, let me give you, I'm going to give you this illustration. And he says these things are symbolic. So God knew what he was doing when Hagar and Isaac were born and all of this was done, that it would be a symbol that he would get people out from under the bondwoman and cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, again, God took care of her son. And the fact that there were servants, I need to talk about this a little bit. I'll take just a couple of minutes to do it because there's accusations now, especially among atheists, of slavery in the Bible. And you need to know that the slavery in the Bible was more indentured servanthood than it was slavery, that it was not antebellum slavery, it was not chattel slavery, which is what antebellum slavery is, which I've said before is the worst kind of slavery that this world has ever seen, one of the worst kinds this world has ever seen. But the New Testament said, if you kidnap a man, or excuse me, the Old Testament said, if you kidnap a man or are found with a kidnapped man, then you will be put to death. So the Bible, 1400 years before Christ made a law that you couldn't kidnap someone. And then there are all kinds of protections in the law for servants. Now, sometimes they pick apart those. And from our culture, it looks like, wow, that's really not treating them right. But you have to understand, therefore, their protection. The closest we have to the Old Testament for laws is the Code of Hammurabi. And in the Code of Hammurabi, it talks about how to treat slaves. In the, the law, it talks about how to treat slaves. And when you compare the two, they are night and day. And we know that the cultures of the Assyrians and, and those that surrounded Israel was a culture that was brutal to slaves. But God gave them protections, even if those protections compared to our culture don't look like protections. We live in a culture of freedom, so it doesn't look like protections. But if we were during the days of, this, of slavery, if we went back before 1850s in the South, if you were in Virginia in, 18, in 1830, and you are reading how slaves were treated under the, the, the Old Testament, you would have gone, this is phenomenal that they're treated this way because slaves were treated so poorly at the time. So the Bible does not condone slavery. And what we will do even if I have to just do an entire teaching on it, we will cover the passages that talk about it and we'll do a whole teaching on it that the Bible does not condone slavery because there's too many people that fire off about it now. There's just too many people that love to point out that, you know, the Bible talks about having slaves, but it's not the same. And I think that's important for us to understand. So um, three things in closing. Thank you for letting me shoot that little thing in there about slavery. Three things in closing. Let us, let us embrace the life of grace. Let us embrace the life of grace. Put aside working to gain God's favor. Instead, if you're going to do something, do it for him. Do it because you love him. Do it because you want to bless him. Do it for him. It's like bringing your wife flowers. It doesn't count if you want something. Here's your, I brought you flowers, honey. Now I want to go on a hunting trip for three days. What do you think? Doesn't count. But I loved you. I saw these. I thought about you. Aww. Learn to embrace the life of, faith, of grace. 
that what you get from God, you get from God because he loves you and he gives it to you by grace. And we'll get so much more. Number two, don't forget what the law does. Don't let anybody put you under bondage. Don't let anybody try to talk about some law because don't forget what the law does. It takes away your freedom. And number three, you will be attacked if you live life by faith. There are going to be those who believe that you are not doing it right when you're living a life of faith. But the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Let them persecute. Let them talk about it all they want to do. Let them talk about how we have easy believism and, and, and tear us down. And we will continue to live by faith and to be justified by the blood of Christ on the cross that is made available to anyone who believes in his name. As the Bible says so many times. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this illustration. Thank you that we get a good understanding as to what is meant here. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that your Holy Spirit teaches us and works within us, that you can take these different things and really make them mean something. And as we close out the theological section in the book of Galatians on grace versus the law or grace versus works, Lord, I pray if there's anyone still hanging on to parts of the law, maybe something they learned before, they'd let it go and embrace it completely and totally by faith. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.